from year to year. And it's the Gemara in Masechet Yoma, Daf Pevav, uh, about Reish Lakish. Reish Lakish, of course, was the most famous Baal Tshuva in history. Now, this is an important thing to note. Chazal did not know about Baalei Tshuva in the colloquial sense that we mean it, in the way that maybe even some of us, myself included, classify ourselves. Today when we talk about Baalei Tshuva or the Baal Tshuva movement or, or, or anything like that, we're talking about people that grew up, like myself, in the, in the American environment, uh, wholly assimilated, my, in my own case, my grandparents had all been born in America. Their parents had all either been born in America or had gone to America as little children before the turn of the previous century, meaning 1900. Uh, so I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm completely, you know, Americanized. My grandparents didn't speak Yiddish. They didn't keep kosher. In high school, I became interested in, uh, in things Jewish and through a variety of influences. We didn't come here to listen to my biography, but uh, through a variety of influences, I became interested in things Jewish and I started keeping mitzvot and uh, learning Torah and all of those good things. So I am considered a Baal Tshuvan. Wherever they keep the statistics on things, they say, here's, here's another one through the influence of this or that or the other thing. Chazal didn't know. Chazal would not have recognized a creature such as myself, and I presume that some of you, uh, or some of our listeners out there, uh, you know, could tell similar similar stories. That's what we, when we talk about Bali Chuba, Chazal didn't know about that because they lived in a world where everyone was religious. Although some people occasionally rebelled. The only term Chazal had for a case like mine was Tinok Shenishba. Somebody, you fell, off the, you fell off the wagon on the way home from being delivered and you were raised by wolves uh, you know, out in the forest and then you're brought back to civilization you know, like a like, uh, jungle book type story. Uh, so obviously the years that you were being raised by wolves, you didn't know about Torah and mitzvot. Uh, but Baalei Tshuva, Chazal thought of Reish Lakish, someone who grew up in a religious environment, the religious environment of the times, rebelled, goes off on this life of being a highwayman, a robber, uh, which he did, and then comes back through the power of his own very interesting biography. Even Rabbi Akiva, who, who often is mistakenly point, pointed to as a, as a Balchuva, was not a Balchuva. He was an Amharitz. He was someone who didn't have the opportunity to learn Torah and become a great scholar. But he wasn't an observant and then later in life, he has the opportunity to sit and learn, and through great talent and intellect, he's able to catch up you know, what he missed in the first uh, 40 years and become the greatest scholar of, of his day. But when, he, when, when you know, uh, uh, for homiletic purposes, we point to Rabbi Akiva as a Baal it's completely incorrect. It was completely incorrect. He was an, an unlearned person, but he was not unreligious, or he certainly wasn't a, a rebel against religion, but Reish Lakish was, and that's why he is the famous case of the Baal Tshuva. Reish Lakish says two very important things about Tshuva and Iskamera, and they're contradictory, which is a problem because we don't like contradictions. So first Reish Lakish says, Gedola Tshuva shazdanot nasot lo kishkagot. Tshuva is so fantastic, it is so fabulous that through the mechanism of Tshuva, your zdanot, your intentional sins, become reckoned as if they're merely errors, mistakes, 
Shogeg. It's like a down, it's like a, uh, you know, like we, you go to the airport, you always want an upgrade. This is a downgrade, but it's a downgrade that you want. It's a mitigating circumstance. You do something intentionally, Zadon, Mezid, and then through the mechanism of Tshuva, so we say we'll count it only like a, only like a, like an error. Now we understand that we're also culpable for our errors. But everyone understands that an error is not the same as a wanton sin. Something done intentionally, with premeditation, with intent. So every system of jurisprudence recognizes two categories. Murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter, for the dead guy, you're just as dead either way. But in terms of how society and how the legal system views the crime and the criminal... It's very different things altogether. Murder, somebody goes out and, and hunts someone down, kills them in cold blood. So, depending upon where you live, you might get the gas chamber. You might get the electric chair. Manslaughter, through an act perhaps of negligence, but not of intent to cause damage, you accidentally kill someone in a way that you carry responsibility. There's no state in the world that would execute such a person. You're... you're culpable, you might even go to jail. There might be civil penalties. You might have to pay damages. But you're not a murderer. So the same thing here. When you do tshuva, we, we downgrade the weight of your sin. And what's the proof of this? Shuva Yisrael Adashem Elokecha ki koshalta be'avonecha. Koshalta be'avon. You should do tshuva because you koshalta michshol. You stumbled. Meaning, you made a mistake. Ba'avonecha. In avon, you know, we have all these different synonyms for different types of sins. You know, like they say about the Eskimos, they have a lot of synonyms for snow because it's something that they spend a lot of time thinking about. So the language develops a lot of, a lot of synonyms for the thing. So we, we have a lot of synonyms for sin. Avon, pesha, chet, avera. Mezid, Shogeg, etc., etc. But in Avon, whatever, however it would be translated in the, in the King James Bible, uh, in Avon is an intentional sin. So what does it mean? Koshalta ba'avonecha. It's, it's like saying you uh, intentionally did a mistake. Right? Or you, you mistakenly did an intentional sin. So how could it be? The Gemara asks, Ha'avon mezidhu. In avon is an intentional sin. But we, you're calling it an accident. So there's this kind of linguistic puzzle in the Pasuk. So that puzzle in the Pasuk is, in Hosea, is explained through this mechanism of, of Reish Lokish. Yeah, it's an avon, it's an intentional sin. But after Yitzhuva, we imagine it's just a michshol, just a shogik. So that's Reish Lokish's comment. And it's something that we can all... We can all understand it's something we recognize. If we spent 10 minutes watching any type of courtroom drama on television, you'll recognize the mechanism of mitigating circumstances and etc. But then Reish Lakish says something else entirely. Ini, oh yeah? Because he said something else. Here's the contradiction. Reish Lakish, Gedola Nasot Zchuyot. Something else entirely. Great is tshuva because after tshuva, your intentional sins are not merely downgraded. They are 
They're upgraded, and, and boy, it's better than business class. It's better than first class. Your, your intentional sins after you do tshuva get transformed into merit, into zchuyot. So think of the, the visual metaphor of the scales of justice. You know, the Rambam tells us in the Hilchot Tshuva that we should be doing tshuva now, like we have less than 72 hours before Yom Kippur. Every little, every little drop, every little bit counts, and you should imagine that right now your pans are in balance, and, and one good deed, the weight of a feather could tip it in either direction. A bad deed could tip it in the other direction. And not just that, but the entirety of the Jewish people is being judged and maybe the entirety of the Jewish people, and then maybe the entirety of the whole world could tip based upon your featherweight action in, in either direction. Uh, so not only do we neutralize, take, take your averot, your avonot, off the pan, but we take them off the pan of chov and put them onto the pan of schut, of merit. How could that be? That is something that's very difficult understand. The idea that, you know, we can count it as, a, uh, as an accident. Well, we do that all the time. If you have children, or if you've been a child, so, you know, this happens every day in parent-children interactions. Uh, a child will do something. A young child, a teenage child, my mother might say, even an adult child, um, will do something. And the parent has to deal with it in one, in one way or another. So the child might use as a defense, it was an accident. Now maybe that's not true. Maybe you as the parent, again in, the, in my metaphor, the parent is of course playing the role of God, which is the role that we, I guess, like to play. Um, but uh, the parent, the parent will will know that it's not true and the child will claim that as a defense. But the parent might decide for educational purposes to accept it as truth. Because what happens, instead of addressing the issue at hand, whatever the trespass that the child committed, you're going to get caught up in a whole discussion of, well, was it intentional or wasn't it intentional? Are you telling the truth or aren't you telling the truth? And that's going to sidetrack you from the actual bad thing that the, kid, that the kid did. And you want to address that. So you might be willing to forego the whole discussion, was it intentional, was it on purpose? You still did it. It still happened. And then you have to address and communicate your values and make it clear that uh, the, the act committed is, is unacceptable. But then you also have to address the idea that we're culpable for our, for our mistakes. This is something that kids often have trouble with, and, and sometimes we adults too. Imagine, imagine the following scenario. Uh, I'm just completely making it up, the fact that I have uh, uh, you know, the children who, who you know, might be confused as the actual actors in this scenario I'm writing. You know, all characters in the following story are completely fictional and any similarity to, uh, to, to children living in my house at the moment are, are you know, merely coincidence. You have a, an older brother and a younger sister. The older brother whacks his younger sister. 
the younger sister is writhing in pain. The older brother says, it was an accident. And in fact, in, in this the scenario I'm painting, it actually was an accident. So he thinks that means it's like it didn't happen. And you have to explain it. No. Look, if you hit her on purpose, so you'd really be in trouble. But if you hit her on accident, if you, if you hurt someone by accident, you're still responsible. Right? She's still writhing in pain. You still, have to, you still have to be attentive to her. And you have to be mindful in the future to try to minimize accidents uh, that, that, that sometimes do happen. But, but, you know, kids often think, say, well, it was an accident. It means, like it's saying, it didn't happen. That's not true. Accidents, we're responsible for our accidents. Imki, they're not the same as intentional sins. So we understand, or I, at least I hope we, we adults understand what it means that, that, uh, that accident, you know, if you have to do something bad, it's better to do it accidentally than to do it on purpose. But what, what in the world could it mean that your zdanot nasot loke zchuyot? Right? You whack your sister and ka-ching, you get ten extra points on the good side. How could that work? And in all cases, we have these two contradictory statements of of Reish Lakish. So the Gemara resolves the contradiction and says, in typical Gemara fashion, Lokasha. They're not two contradictory statements. They're talking about two separate cases. Kan me'ahava, kan me'ira. The case of Zdanot Nasotlo Ke Shkagot, the downgrade where we imagine it's unintentional, that is the result of chuva motivated by fear. Fear of God, fear of punishment. But it's still chuva. Halavai, we should all do chuva motivated by, by a little fear. We could all use a little Yerashamayim. But the tshuva, which is completely transformative, that takes the sins and turns them into merits, that is tshuva motivated by love. And that's the teaching of, that's the teaching of, of Reish Lakish. Now Rabbi Soloveitchik was, seems to have been uh, completely enchanted with this Gemara. And it was something that he returned to time and again. He addresses it most famously in, uh, in uh, you must be familiar, there's this uh, well-known book uh, in Hebrew, Al Hatshuva, in English translation, On Repentance. You know this, you know this book by Rabbi Soloveitchik? It's one of his more uh, popular works. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik used to deliver a, uh, a tshuva drasha in America during the week of Aseret uh, Mechuva, during between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. It was, you know, famously attended by thousands of people during the 50s, 60s, 70s, things like that. Uh, it was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was delivered in Yiddish um, to this overflow crowd in New York. And then later, some of these lectures were written up and published in Hebrew and in, and in English, uh, first in this book called Al Hatshuva, or On Repentance, and then in, in, the, in the past number of years, there are a few other such uh, books that have come out. In that book, On Repentance, there's an essay or a, a, a lecture uh, where he addresses this particular Gemara head-on. Uh, the essay, I think, is called, um, in English, I think it's called uh, Blotting Out Sin or Elevating It. 
biur hara o ha'alato, something like that in, uh, in the Hebrew. And he develops this idea that there are two modes that the Balchuva, there are these two um, uh, impetuses that drive the Tshuva process. A kind of recoil and a kind of surging forward. Here, the Rav doesn't use that language of Ratzov Shov, which is a kind of shorthand in Hasidic teaching for these two different uh, kinds of responses to different stimuli. But there's the recoil of fear, which causes you to abandon sin, and the surging forward, the, the energizing positive force motivated by, motivated by love, uh, which has the power not merely to blot out sin, but to elevate it and, and to transform it into zhuyot. That's the most famous uh, and, and uh, clear articulation of Rabbi Salvechik's teachings on, on this particular piece of, of, of Gemara. I'm not going to talk about that. Because there are a few other places where he explores the same theme, and each time he did it, it came out a little bit differently with different emphases, with different points. Sometimes he addressed the Gemara head-on, and other times it's clear that that's what you, know, you read between, between the lines. There's a passage in the Halachic Man, you know, perhaps his most famous work, or second most famous work, in the Halachic Man in the English edition. It's around page 74, 75, 76, something like that. I don't have it Xeroxed here for you. Um, uh, where he addresses these themes also. Uh, uh, there he takes on the Musser movement and he addresses why certainly within the, the tradition of the Lithuanian yeshivot uh, you know, particularly those populated by people named Soloveitchik, uh, his father his grandfather, going back to the Nitziv, Beisalevi, etc. Uh, why the Musser movement did not make headroads. Because the Musser movement, at least as, as initially formulated Muslim movement, of course, you know, that great ethical uh, movement uh, within non-Hasidic Jewry, um, you know, was meant as a kind of ethical corrective to religious Judaism, uh, at least as initially formulated, the Muslim movement was motivated by this kind of uh, uh, racking yourself, you know, raking yourself over the coals and, and this kind of intense soul searching and this kind of negation of the self. And the Rub said, that's an unhealthy mode. That's not going to get you to tshuva me'ahava. It's not creative. All it does is break down. Now, sometimes you, you, you need to break down. But sometimes you need to build. And that's what was more interesting to him. He called that creative tshuva. And he talked about it in this, in this essay called, in English it's called uh, Sacred and Profane. I'm not even sure if this is published in, in Hebrew. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it appears in a number of different publications. This is uh, the quote. For, there's a collection of essays in English called Shurei Harav, which probably came out around 20 years ago or so. And it appears there. It appears in other places as well. And this is in a chapter, the subheading, called creative tshuva. So I wanted to, to look at this together and try to pick it apart to go back and understand what he's saying about tshuva. So Rabbi Salvechik writes, there's a concept dating from Plato that the basic values of man's personality, taken in a broad sense, 
are not fully evaluated in his lifetime or while he has them. An example of this concept is health. Uh, right? Now it's health, you, you appreciate it when you don't have it. But when everything's working fine, you... You know, it's like our car. Most people don't think about the state of their carburetor until it stops working. While well, one is imbued with the euphoria of health, he is not keenly aware of his physical state. He fails to appreciate the treasure of health. It is only when one has first become ill that he first realizes what health means. And then he makes mention of uh, Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer, 19th century German philosopher, who contended in his pessimistic temperament, contended that we understand health through sickness, pleasure through pain, good through evil. This awareness through contrast is also apparent in the concept of home or fatherland. We have the striking example today in the sentiment of soldiers overseas. This, this was a, based on a talk. It was a Yaritzite share that he gave for his father. It was delivered in 1945 at the end of World War II. And he says, you know, you see this, you know, these, you know, some of the boys went off to fight wars overseas in Europe or in the Pacific. So, you know, many, many young Americans had never gone more than 50 miles away from the farm they grew up on in Kansas and suddenly they're on the beaches in Normandy or at Iwo Jima and it gives you a different perspective on, on home when you've been away. What is it that breeds complacency in man to his vital values while he has them? Because these values, right, uh, uh, how would you say uh, uh, familiarity breeds contempt? In other words, the values that we have, that we, you know, in fact do hold dear, while, while everything is normal, we, we take them for granted. Because these values form such an integral part of... Are there more sheets? There must be more sheets. Because these values form such an integral part of his physical and mental makeup, they become identical with his psyche, and he therefore loses the perspective that only an Archimedean point of distance and contrast may give him. Man is most short-sighted when he would view his own psyche. In other words, our ability to be self-reflective, our ability to have any real insight to our own makeup, our own psychology is always going to be limited. doesn't mean that people can't achieve it. Some people need to sit on the couch for a while, or lie on the couch, or lie on someone else's couch for 50 minutes at a shot. Other people can achieve a certain degree of self-awareness and, uh, and self-reflection uh, through other means. Uh, I think that you know, uh, many of us believe that a kind of authentic religious experience, authentic Torah study, provides a window into that kind of self-awareness, self-reflection. But self-awareness is, is one of those kinds of things that it's, that it's tricky because you, you might think that you have it even when you don't. Someone was describing to me a, a certain kind of person who... Uh, was entire, well, we all know people like this, well, or maybe not, um, entirely unself-aware, uh, without giving any details, because we are being recorded and this might be listened to by people out there in the world. But imagine someone who's just so unaware, you know, every office place has such a person, or, or every shul probably has such a person, or every, maybe even every family. Uh, 
so completely unself-aware, so completely clueless as to how he or she is viewed by those around him or her. The person said, everyone knows someone like this. And if you don't know someone like this, you're probably him. <laughs> so that, that inability to sometimes have a, a true barometer, uh, even when you're otherwise normally psychologically healthy, usually we need some kind of outside lens to help us understand. Man walking the circular earth sees only a plane. Right? In other words, we walk around and we experience, even, even though we know, Dr. Schroeder, right, the world, the earth is round, correct? The egg shift. <laughs> That's a kind of round. But there you go. From, from Genesis and the Big Bang, there, there, now, we, now we know the earth is in fact round. Scientifically proven here, ladies and gentlemen, by a leading uh, physicist. Um, but we don't experience it that way. But you get up in the morning and you walk around and we experience the world as if it's flat because we're very small and the world is very large and we have no mechanism at least as long as we have two feet on the ground to experience the world as anything other than, than flat. Uh, same thing with that kind of awareness because we're close to it, to our own psyche we, we, we see ourselves with a kind of warped perspective. It is in this light that Chazal envisaged the great man's role. His inspiration may flourish on after his death for those with a qualitative appreciation of time and history. And this concept of contrast, I think he's saying there's something about role modeling, that one of the, one of the prisms that we can have onto ourselves is through the observance of men or women of great spirit, of great holiness. And this concept of contrast carries weight not only in a mundane sense of health and home, and also for certain religious values, but also for the highest value in man's life, awareness of God. God from afar fascinates one more than God in one's immediacy. The modern Jew has first understood the prophet's cry, Mirachok Hashem Nirali, from Yirmiyahu. It is today that God appears to me from afar. Nowadays, he's saying, and again, he's writing this 1945. Many a time in our history, we did not appreciate the nearness of God or his significance as much as we do today, when in many respects, we are so distant from him. It is this same concept of contrast, of appreciating something only when it's absent, of first becoming aware of the Lord from afar that is in, intrinsicated in tshuva, in repentance. The traditional view is that tshuva idea is penitence, right? That's, I mean, in English we call it repentance, right? To repent, penitence, to seek, to seek forgiveness. And then, for the rest of the paragraph, he's taking on the, as a rhetorical device, he's giving you the Christian point of view. For the Christian theologian, tshuva is a transcendent act dependent upon the grace of God, who is all merciful and benevolent. The erasure of man's sins is, from the rational standpoint, incomprehensible. That's what, why, if you, we, we believe, I mean, even Christianity believes this, but even we believe it. Judaism also believes in schar onish and reward and punishment. If you do something bad, you're couple. If you do a mitzvah, you get reward. Right? If you do a sin, you get punished. We're, we're accountable for our actions. Without reward and punishment. This is why the Rambam counts belief in reward and punishment as one of the 13 principles of faith. Without reward and punishment, the whole system 
is, is meaningless. If you feel that your actions have no accountability, if your good deeds uh, have no effect, so then it really does make no sense. But in Christianity, the idea that only the supernatural, miraculous intercession of God on behalf of the sinner may effectuate this cleansing, an act of what the Christians call grace. Uh, really, we're accountable for our sin, but God is kind and graceful and loving, and he forgives us, us weak, wanton sinners. The task of the sinner is to repent, to mortify himself, to practice castigation, to cry and implore for divine mercy and, and pity. Again, he's speaking, he's presenting the Christian view. The convert, according to this concept, is a passive, pitiful creature who begs for and attends divine grace. You're a convert, not, not a gare, someone who used to be Christian and became Jewish, used to be Jewish and became Christian. Uh, convert meaning someone who has repented, right, in that, in that Christian sense, or in the evangelical sense of born again. But the Jewish view is different. The halachic interpretation of Chua differentiates between penitence and purification. Kapara and tahara. Kapara, atonement, and tahara, purification. Kapara, Yom Kippurim, the day of atonement. Kapara, penitence, absolution, or, or atonement, is similar in effect to the universal concept of conversion in Toto. It is not a psychological phenomenon but a theological one, transcendent and non-rational. You do a sin, you do tshuva, God forgives you. He, he, he wipes the slate clean. It's illogical. Logic says if you sin, you should be punished. If you, if you do good deeds, you should be rewarded. So the idea of God interceding, or the idea that we can petition, on one plane, it's illogical. It, it's even, it even, it's even um, uh, um, uh, unfair but that's why it is an act of transcendence. To alter the past is an act which denies the laws of causality and regulation in men's lives, and therefore, that, therefore it's illogical. You're saying, I did it, but I did tshuva, so it's as if I didn't do it, or I did it on purpose, I did tshuva, it's as if it was merely an accident. So that is, that, that alters the laws of causality, that alters the laws of cause and effect. Okay, it does, but that's the way tshuva works, both in the Christian tradition and also, also in our tradition. But, he says, the halachic concept of tshuva contains yet another element, tahara, purification. This concept is one that predicates not the removal of sin, but its exploitation. What does it mean, its exploitation? What does it mean to exploit something? Take advantage of it. How can you take advantage of sin? To change. Mm -hmm. To change. To change. So what's the advantage? It comes the um, springboard for it. It's the second teaching of Reish Lakish. So these concepts, see, that's why I say that the Reish Lakish Gemara is, is what we, you read between the lines here in this essay. Shuva Miyira Zdanot Nasotlo Kishkagot is the underpinning of Kapara. Kapara, we wipe the slate clean. Chuva Mi'ahava, Chuva motivated by love, the underpinnings of the mechanic of Zdanot Nasotlo Kishkagot, your intentional sins become merits, 
is tahara. It's transformative. It's not merely wiping the slate clean. It's moving reality from debt. Like imagine you call up, you go up to the bank and you say, they say, you know, they call up, they say, you know, you're, you're 5,000 shekels in overdraft. You have to do something. So you say, you know what? Let's imagine it's not red. Let's imagine it's black. Right? I'm not 5,000 in overdraft. I'm 5,000 in plus. Imagine the bank said, okay. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be great? That's what Shuvah Me'ahava is. And the more overdraft you had, I mean, this actually happens. But you have to have a lot of overdraft. And you have to like, so, you know, that's what happened with like Dunkner. There was so much in debt. Like I, if I'm in debt, if I'm 5,000 shekel in overdraft, like I'm in serious trouble. But if Dunkner's like 500,000 shekels in overdraft, they say, eh, okay, never mind. So I guess I have Yira and he has Ava. <laughs> or maybe he has something else that I don't have. The halachic concept of tshuva contains yet another element, tara, purification. This concept is one that predicates not the removal of sin, but its exploitation. The tara idea is rather to change the vectorial force of sin, its direction and destination. It's like a complete, a complete re, or, re, re, reorienting, you know, the direction. You know, like you, you, you put a, I, I don't know, like, what, like you know, Dr. Schroeder's here, so like I'm bringing out all the old high school physics uh, thing. You know, you're like a body moving in space with nothing to, to interact with it. It's going to just keep moving in a straight line. But one little ping, and it's going to alter its course entirely. So here, you move it, it's 180 degrees. When the sinner of the first category attempts to forget his sin and beseeches God to erase it, the Jewish repentance strives to remember his sin. There's a pasuk in Tehillim, negdi tamid. My sins are ever before me. So that sounds like a very, uh, you know, like the sword is hanging above my head, like a very pessimistic kind of thing. The Baal is always carrying around his past with him. It's haunting him. He strives to convert his sin into a spiritual springboard for increased inspiration and evaluation. This act is not supernatural, but psychological. It conveys one law in mental causality. Although a cause is given, the effect need not equal the cause. The effect need not be predetermined. Man himself may determine the vectorial character of the effect and give it direction and destination. So that idea, my sins are ever-present, which uh, the pshat is, you know, this notion of like, you know, like uh, you have like these black marks on your record, right? And even if you do tshuva, like those black marks will, will always be with you. Or like that idea of like a pardon, you know, like a convicted criminal, uh, you know, goes to jail, but the president gives him a pardon. So the pardon doesn't mean that he's innocent. It doesn't mean that he, we overturned, it's not that he won on appeal. That happens sometimes. Someone's convicted, perhaps wrongly convicted. And then, you know, years later they get the DNA evidence and they show without a shadow of a doubt, he, he, was, he, he didn't do it. So that's really, we, we completely blotted out. It was a mistake. But there's another, Hanina. 
guy does a crime, he goes to jail, he sits in jail, and the president uh, paroles him. Uh, not paroles him, or the president pardons him. He's not innocent. He still has this on his record. But he, we, we had mercy and we let him out of, we let him out of jail. So, right? he's always going to be that convict. So the Rub's reading is completely different. When you read it through the prism of Reish Lakish's second teaching, Khatati Negdi Tamid, is a badge of honor. The Rambam, you have it here on the sheet, the Rambam says about Vidui. You know, the mitzvah of the day on Yom Kippur is Vidui, is confession. So here, one sentence in, he says, Averot shehid lehem biyom ha-kippurim zeh, Choseru mitvadeh lehem biyom ha-kippurim acher. Afapisho uomed b'tshuvato. Shene'emar, the Pesach and Tilim. Psha'i ani eda v'chatati negdi tamid. So you did something wrong this year. Maybe. Someone, somewhere. None of you. Somebody did something wrong this year. So they're going to do tshuva. They're going to do tshuva gemura, complete tshuva, the real thing. They're going to admit their sin. They're going to confess their sin. If, they, if someone was harmed, they'll, they'll do restitution. They'll pay back what they stole or whatever it was. They'll ask forgiveness if it was a sin between man and fellow man. And then they will resolve never to do it again. And they never will do it again. Next year, when it comes time for Yom Kippur, they're going to confess the sins for next year. And they're also going to confess that one sin which they've already taken care of. And in two years from now, they'll confess the sins from next year and the sin that they took care of this year. V'chad gadya, and so on and so forth. Why? So it's not like that kind of notion, like, you know, you go to AA and you say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I haven't had a drink in 25 years. So 25 years is a pretty long run. You know, maybe you've had more years without drinking than you ever had drinking. But you say that I'm always an alcoholic because there's no such thing as a recovered alcoholic. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You just maybe have it under control. So that's not why you confess the sins again and again and again. Psychologically, it's something else altogether. When you do tshuva me'ahava, your past sins are, are, are now schuyot. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you're repugnant. You, you regret that you had done that. But, but by declaring that I once did this and now I got it right. So that's also part, because Vidui, the Rav says, in a fourth important essay, which I believe a number of years ago, uh, on some other occasion, I substituted for Rabbi Bravner, and I made mention of this essay in the context of Parshat Kitavo. Uh, where, where the Torah talks about vidui maaser. In Parshat Kitavo, the Torah says that when that every whenever you produce, you have to take trumot and masrot, etc. And twice every shemitah, there's this ceremony called vidui maaser. You have to make sure that any maaser, any of the gifts for the kohanim, the leviim, etc., that you had set aside, that they were all delivered properly, and you do this thing called vidui maaser literally confess the confession about the tithes about the maaser but it's not a confession the way we're going to confess on Yom Kippur Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazanu, Dibanu, Dofi this list this litany of, of sins and, and transgressions you're saying 
I did all the mitzvos. I did everything I was supposed to do. It's a declaration because the word vidui doesn't mean confession. Certainly not in the Christian connotation of declaring your sins. The word vidui means a declaration. Now, in the context of Yom Kippur, we're declaring all the things we did wrong. But vidui also means that kind of... It's beautiful how all these ideas... These were essays that he wrote over the course of a long career, but they all shed light one on the next. What he says about that sense of self-awareness, of self-knowledge, is here also. Vidui is about self-knowledge. It's about having a real sense of, you know, a real stock taking what you got wrong. But it's meaningless without a sense of what you're capable of doing right. If you don't believe that you can get it right, there's no point in confessing the things you did wrong. Because one of the foundational steps in Shuvah, according to the Rambam, is Kabbalah al Ha'atid. If you recognize that you did something wrong, you know, the first, uh, this is from AA, uh, right? Admitting you have a problem is the first step, right? First, you have to rec- if you recognize that you've done sin, if you feel regret and remorse about that sin, if you confess the sin, and all the while you are certain that you are going to repeat it, you are in the felicitous phrase of the Rambam, ketovel v'sheretz biyado, like someone that goes into the mikvah while holding the source of impurity itself. It's a joke. You're making a joke of the whole thing. You cannot be purified until you let go of the Tame object, the impure object. But if you take the object of impurity itself with you into the mikvah, it obviously doesn't work. Because the moment you step out of the mikvah, you're still holding on to it. So if you don't believe that you can change, then there can't be any Kabbalah al Ha'ati. There can be no resolve for the future. So Vidui saying, you know what, ten years ago I did this sin and I did Shiva Gemura for it. That's a zchut. And that's what it means. Zdanot nasot lo'ke zchuyot. You, in the Rav's phrase, you elevate it. You transform it from chet. It was a chet. It was a terrible thing. And you should feel repugnance to it. But the schut is not in the fact that you ate this or you did that or you stole this or you, you, you did the following thing on, uh, on Shabbat that you weren't supposed to do or fill in the blank, whatever it is. The schut is that you grew, that you changed, that you transformed yourself. And the, the, the success that you had in that instance serves as proof that it can be done. And that is the way in which it is a schut. But that comes about through the mechanism of love, of what the Rav calls creativity. Fear is a very powerful force in religious life and we should not, we should not uh, gainsay it. Right? We should all have a bit more Yerat Shemayim. Yerat Shemayim, Yerat Chet, Yerat Onesh, Yerat Hashem. But it cannot be the only motivating factor. Shuva me'ahava, love, a positive force, is the source of creativity. 
And in that way, you understand Rabbi Soloveitchik's uh, core. All of his teachings on tshuva are the same. Tshuva is not repentance. It's not even the more literal return. It's recreation. It's the opportunity to recreate who you are. And that's what the Rambam says. The Rambam mentions this idea that uh, there was this minog that people had, that one of the darkei had tshuva is that the Baal Tshuva would change Mishane et Shmo. He lists different characteristics that a Baal Tshuva would change his name. It's not a halacha, uh, meaning it's not obligatory, but he mentions this was a characteristic of Baal Tshuva. And even today, we know certainly that there are, you know, you used to be, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever it is, and he became something else. Not just the kind of Zionist fervor that some of us had, that when we came in Aliyah, we, we Hebraized our names, either our first names or our family names or or things like that, which once upon a time was more popular than it is today. Uh, although you st- what? Now Israelis want to do the opposite. They want to go back to European names. But it was certainly uh, popular, and Ben-Gurion felt very strongly about it on Zionistic basis, you know, that you couldn't be a member of the cabinet unless you had Hebraized, Hebraized your name. Um, but, you know, we know many people, they were Jeffrey, they become Yosef when they start doing Torah and Mitzvah. Now, the people feel that that's not necessary, or there are other factors that have to be weighed in, including, you know, whether or not your parents are going to be thrilled with this or not, um, that, that prevents you from doing it. The Rambam mentions that you change your name. Why? Klomar she'ani acher. Ve'eni oto ha'isha asa otama ma'asim. By changing your name, you're, you're uh, transmitting that you're someone else, that you've changed, and you're not the same person that did those vile, wicked acts in the, in the past. It's that, whether it's a literal name change or just a kind of figurative personality transformation, that's what tshuva is, that act of recreating, that ability to say, either on Yom Kippur, during these ten days, or, or any time throughout the year, Ani Acher, the whole world thinks they know who I am. My workplace thinks they know who I am. My family, my friends, my acquaintances, my boss, they think they know who I am. But I can determine who I am. I can determine what I'm going to be like. It takes a lot of self-awareness. It takes a lot of reflection to get there. But it's possible. And that act of creativity is the essence of the higher transforming, elevating level of tshuva me'ava. So, and next year, Rabbi Bravin will be back to give you a different shear on, uh, on tshuva. You'll compare what he was going to say on this topic to what I said.